Hey you guys, Thomas here. Uh, I just wanted to epigraph this episode with a quick note that the sound quality got a little weird for this one uh, and contributed to the delay of its release, uh, so it was a little later in the month. I accidentally recorded this uh, one on an inferior mic uh, for my headset rather than my table mic and had to boost it in post. So it's not going to be uh, the near professional levels it gets to in the other episodes, but I think it's serviceable. Um, it's still like definitely legible at least. <laughs> uh, it makes sense that the very beginning of a podcast is going to be rocky and I'm uh, glad we didn't lose the whole episode. We're learning as we go about all kinds of things, uh, you know, not fidgeting around, changing our language a little bit, uh, and I appreciate you guys bearing with us. Uh, as always, the intro music is by the KVB, and the outro is by Ochre, and I want to thank them for letting me know that they were cool with me using their music. Uh, definitely listen to those guys on Bandcamp and buy their shirts and concert tickets and uh, everything else they have to offer. Uh, they're excellent acts. Uh, this is my favorite episode so far, so let's get it started. And there, and there is at the same time. I love about it. There's a sense of humor about it too, right? It does it. It does it while getting us to laugh at ourselves. I think in some way, and and maybe just giving it that more accessible, except you know, edge of humor to it. You know, it's like it's awful, right. but it allows us to kind of uh, to. to it sugars the pill with that that humor you know even yeah. even I, I couldn't help but like, even when he goes back to his apartment and like even the like the, 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 the door yeah the door and yeah. the immigrants and there's like one immigrant lady that shouts at him something like like so you come home now you prick or something yeah. like that like just <laughs> the poor guy he can't like you know he can't get a break anywhere yeah. <laughs> like he just goes out to like eat somewhere and they're like oh yeah you're eating you're like you fucking like like piece of yeah, shit. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> Change shirts because they look like just a, a head floating in a void. It's like just <laughs> white on white. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Doppelgangers on Film, a film theory podcast where we look at the strange, the psychological, the social, and the slimy aspects of all kind of movies. <laughs> I'm here with my co-host Alexander Bovey, PhD, and I'm Thomas Radke, a bachelor's degree. This is episode two, Blade Runner 2049. Uh, one of Bovey and my own's uh, favorite sci-fi films of the 21st century. Uh, we're going to do a deep dive into this movie because we think it deserves it. And we're uh, happy that you're joining us. Um, Bovey's got a little bit of a framework here to talk about. So I'll pass it to him and uh, we'll get started. Hi, Thomas. So, um, hey, so we, uh, I'm going to give you a little bit of a uh, framework uh, for the readers to think about um, some of some of the ideas, concepts, and a little bit of theory we'll use to um, shed some light, hopefully, on some of the scenes and themes from Blade Runner 2049. Um, as we've mentioned before, we're going to do uh, a kind of a pairing of a reading or readings uh, with a film. And I thought maybe I'd say a tiny bit about that, too, which is just that the readings... I intend, to, or we're thinking about the readings as being sort of um, a kind of uh, suggestive, maybe um, metaphorical or somehow playful relation to the film, not necessarily like a theoretical, not like a critical take on the film. And so, uh, yeah. so this week, one of the ones that I, I thought about doing was uh, an essay that I really like. Uh, it's, it's in a book called Art in the Anthropocene. 
And if I can give a quick shout out, shout out to um, Open Humanities Press is a really uh, amazing um, open uh, access, open source press. And um, so you can get all their stuff in book format or or free online. And it's all really great quality and it's really great writing. Anyway, this one that I was looking at is uh, an essay by Imgard Emelhines or Emelhines. I'm actually not precisely sure how to how to pronounce that last name. I don't know if you know better than I do, Thomas, but I, I don't, I do not. Yeah. Okay. Uh, it's funny because I've actually seen it spelled two different ways. So it's even more confusing. <laughs> I don't know why, but, uh, so, so it's, uh, Ingrid, I'll call her, I'll call her, uh, Emil Heinz and, um, and apologize, uh, if I'm getting that wrong, but uh, I like the Heinz. Yeah. So yeah, Emil Heinz. Yeah, I think stronger so. syllable. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, assuming it's maybe German with the I. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> uh, anyway, uh, um, the, the title of the essay is "Images Do Not Show the Desire to See in the Anthropocene." Uh, and so um, I thought I would I picked this for a couple of reasons, and um, I might even give you a couple of quick quotes from this text. Uh, it, it to me um, that idea of of the Anthropocene. Uh, or as I think what we prefer to call it, the capitalist but really it's in some sense interchangeable terms. I think that's really central to this film. Uh, I would even say this is a sci-fi film for the capitalist scene in a way that there's um, very few, if any others. I would even maybe go go on a limb and say that, and yeah. um, and that and that we're going to talk about the gaze is going to be very important in, in some ways, a post-human gaze. Uh, or an inhuman gaze, or a non-human gaze, however you want to think about that, uh, in the Anthropocene. And so this essay, Images Do Not Show, Desire to See in the Anthropocene, really, I think it's a great text. If the reader gets a chance to check it out again, it's open source. It's in Art in the Anthropocene online. Uh, you could even pause this, give it a quick read, and come back if you wanted to. Um, but it's, uh, or read it after. It's, it's, it's very suggestive. Um, I can definitely put a link in the description there, too. Oh, great. Thank you. Yeah, we'll link that. And um, just kind of give you a quick overview of the, the takeaways from this. First of all, I like the title, Images Do Not Show the Desire to See in the Anthropocene. I think the idea, I was thinking about it in terms of why images do not show, uh, what don't images show. And I think part of her part of her argument is that, in a way, we've become, in the Anthropocene, completely inundated in images, and in particular kind of images, which are images that are saturated with information, so they become commodities. So we're, we have these images that are commodities, and and so um, and so in a way, images do not show is the fact that we're blind, sort of because of images. We're blinded by images. We have so many images. So I thought maybe like a kind of another way to phrase that, kind of to borrow from um, uh, Todd McGowan's title of his book on comedy, uh, which I love. The title uh, <clears throat> "Only a Joke Can Save Us Now." <laughs> uh, I thought she she could have titled this "Only an Image Can Save Us Now" because her point is that we're blinded by images, but only it only images have the potential. Precisely because images are our symptom, only images have the potential um, to to show us something. But but it's rare that that happens, and so uh, I want I, I love that idea of thinking about this film and images as such a visual film and a beautiful, absolutely beautiful film, right? Yeah. And so, so uh, let me just sketch out her argument then real quick. Uh, her point is that images um, 
Well, let's see I, I, a couple of quotes here at this point. She says, uh, I will argue in this essay, the Anthropocene has not meant a new image of the world. Instead, it has meant first a radical change in the conditions of visuality and second, the transformation of the world into images. And this transformation of the world into images are images that are uh, commodities. And so she, she sets up this whole idea of what she calls communicative capitalism. Um, and and argues that we that, that our images images have been transformed into um, currency. You know, and you think about like all the social media likes and and passing on. You share and share and share and share images, and they just circulate, yeah. circulate, circulate. But they're um, they're actually um, kind of meaningless, right? Because each of these images are are saturated in the sense that they they don't withhold anything from us. They simply you can consume them on the drop of a dime. They're exhausted in what they're meant, you know, usually they're captioned or somehow they have some clear implication yeah. and that, that makes them facilitate in the way that, um, uh, that they, that they, as she says, uh, absorb our, our total attention. And yeah. then what I like though, is that she has a counter to this, which is, um, which is the cinematic image. And so, she thinks that, and she's going here with, uh, she's drawing on a lot of these ideas from other people, but I like the way that she, she synthesizes them. Um, and she's drawing the idea that the filmic image, the cinematic image can do something that the other images can't do. And that is just very specifically needed in the Anthropocene to, um, to show us, show us something to, to, to get us to, to think our way out of, uh, rather than be totally inundated. So maybe a quick example of the, the idea of images as commodified. She gives this partly this example, which I think is a good example of the Anthropocene is like, you know, you think about the, the unsustainability, the collapse of ecosystems, of spheres, of, of the natural world around us, of, of, of species, etc. It's never been more pictured than it is today, right? I mean, you can yeah. watch endless documentaries about the end of species and nature, natural life, and what it was and what it is. But it's almost like that doesn't do anything except defer the actual action, right? right. Like yeah. It just still keeps happening around us. And that's part of her point is like you, you consume it as an image instead of confronting the real. So that, so that yeah. she says these, these images as commodities, they shield us from the real in some yeah. way. So therefore, they, they mediate that. And so yeah. this is well, like how... Uh, that yeah. kind of returns to this one point that you made in uh, episode zero, where you talked about um, how uh, so often like the uh, consuming a thing can be, can replace uh, an, an other action uh, that would address that thing. And I think that's like something really, really apparent as when you talk about the consumption and the spread of images where the, mm -hmm. uh, what is considered the right thing to do uh, is to just spread the image to be like a link in the chain of this. Yeah. And that replaces, uh, any other move. I think it like clicks something in the brain. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah. To, to say that, that you've done enough. Uh, and, uh, yeah, that is like a, a dangerous, uh, thing and something that we're urged to often to do by the powerful, um, mm -hmm. Yeah, which, yeah, which I mean, set off some right. alarms. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I mean, if you think about like what is our sort of like what is our underlying um, 
position or mentality when we do that is you're saying like something clicks, we're, we're used, we're responding in image. And isn't the idea like, okay, somehow these are fostering an awareness. We're fostering an awareness and the awareness will lead yeah. to somehow changing the reality. But in fact, the awareness seems to be the end game of all of this, <laughs> right? Like it's yeah, the awareness yeah. of seeing somehow seeing, like I've seen it and we're aware and that it's like, like you said, it clicks something. It's like, okay, that's done. Um, yeah. And I feel satisfied with that. I enjoy that feeling. And therefore, the real is not even, it's even further away from, uh, from actually being affected. Right. Yeah. It's yeah. Kind of, I think that, kind of uh, yeah, no, I, I think that goes so well too with the, uh, the film, uh, which is such an oppressive movie in so many ways, uh, because I think a lot of the reason people feel like that's what they have to do is, uh, we're, we're not given a whole lot of options, uh, you know, uh, in, in, uh, the current paradigm, uh, you know, the kind of, uh, pushing back against uh, power and against horror is uh, something that is uh, heavily policed in this country, both like literally and figuratively. Um, and uh, you kind of see like uh, the breaking point uh, for a single person, a single subject in the film. Uh, but it takes quite a lot. You know, he is like, he is right. uh, facing down yeah. the horror. Um, but he has through like conditioning and uh, other forces uh is is um you know he he resists uh snapping into like a revolutionary mindset until mm -hmm. uh finally he's he's just pressed too much like uh, too much is unearthed yeah yeah i think you're right that there's something that he goes through some transformation at this point, you know, close to the end, or let's say right, right in the shift into what we can call the third act of the film. Right. Right. And, um, and, uh, yeah, it's really interesting. Well, we, we should, we come back around to that because like what ha happens, what is that snapping into action? It's a very strange one. It's not, yes. it's not a uh, easily definable, like what is the, yes, he like the, and the whole film, right. Like shifts into this much more fast paced, like goal oriented, Mode, yeah. but but for what it's not clear what happened and that's what i love about it so i want to come back uh to that idea and it really speaks to this it's a problem it's not an easily answered thing well okay it's not like we could say okay we're looking at image we need to act so let's just act let's just right, go yeah. to the real thing right there's no that's yeah. what's interesting and i think that's part of the emil heinz point is like we need to be able to think through this dialectically and so one of the interesting things our points of her argument is she goes through kind of the status of the modern image and she thinks about how uh basically like changes in art experimental art um um modernist and um expressionism she goes through you know kind of like history basically of, of 20th century art and and experimental film and thinks about how um, the image has been basically like decentered, like grounded in some ways from, uh, um, ungrounded in some ways from the human subject. And that that's a potentially great thing, but that it's been really instead used by major corporations. She gives Google as a great example of like they, yeah. they attach our, our sense of perception and vision to algorithms and change them into this way of, uh, because they're detached. But so her point is like cinema can do something more dialectical and thoughtful with that ungrounded image, this image that's not linked and restrained by human 
uh, grounding. And so let me read one last quote where she gets into this idea of the cinema, because this is the key idea for me. Why does she think that? So she says, uh, by the way, if people are looking, this is on 138 in that book of her essay. And she says, in an era of ubiquitous synthetic digital images dissociated from human vision and directly tied to power and capital. So now they're tied to power and capital and so human. Um, what images and aesthetic experience have been turned into cognition and thus into empty sensations or tautological truths about reality, the image of the Anthropocene is still to come. The Anthropocene is the age of man that announces its own extinction. In other words, the Anthropocene thesis posits the human as the end of its own destiny. And then uh, just skipping a little bit to the end of that paragraph in terms of images. In short, um, images of the Anthropocene are missing. Thus, in the first necessary, sorry, it is first necessary to transcend our incapacity to imagine an alternative or something better by drawing a distinction between images and imaginary or pictures. Although it is laid by the optical nerve, the picture does not make an image. In order to make images, it is necessary to make vision assassinate perception, to ground vision, and then to perform as an artistic activity and think vision as a critical activity. Following Jean-Luc Godard, whose work operates between the registers of the real, the imaginary, and art. Only cinema is capable of delivering images as opposed to imagery, conveying not a subject, but the supposition of the subject and the substance. Alterity is absolutely necessary for the image, as the image is intensification of presence. That is why it is able to hold out against all all experiences of vision and that that end idea that alterity is absolutely essential to the image and especially the cinematic image that it holds out from vision that to me is really wonderful the idea so she yeah. calls this the alterity of the image so for for some viewers may not some listeners may not know that term alterity it just means otherness just the idea that it's something other that you therefore that therefore is withheld from you it's opaque, unknown to, and not even knowable to you. And so there's something about the cinematic cinematic image that potentially withholds something from you. And I think that's great. Like instead of being saturated by information, it resists something. And I was thinking to link this, I want to come back maybe to think of how that plays out in, um, in, the, in the film more specifically, but to link this to the film here, uh, the dreamlikeness of the film, I think is part of that. Yeah. And um, uh, Freud says something wonderful in the interpretation of dreams, a book in which he, you know, exhaustively interprets every word of dreams, right? And just goes through all these associations that you can uh, possibly find with them. But then he says, every dream has a navel. <laughs> uh, and he says, it's, a, it's a point in the dream that sort of like dips down the, into a place that you can't go, you can't see, you can't know. And I think that that's sort of the alternative of the image. It has a navel. It has a, it has a <laughs> point of opacity that it withholds something from you. Um, yeah. and that, and that that's its potential to spark something in you too, to spark some kind of new knowledge that doesn't saturate you with information, but allows you to think visually without, um, being able to, to contain that meaning so the image has an otherness. And so one of my yeah. questions might be ongoing for our discussion is what is the naval point of Blade Runner 2049? <laughs> God, I was yeah. thinking about that, uh, 
nonstop, uh, yeah, over the past like week. Um, yeah. There's so many points where you can kind of like, I almost like stood up and was like, like, that's the point of this movie. You know, like that's what this yeah. movie is like, quote unquote, like about. Yeah. Um, but the fact that I did that multiple times kind of uh, <laughs> undermines that a little bit. Right. Because, um, yeah, there's yeah. like, there's a lot going on um, mm-hmm. in the film. And uh, I, I blame a lot of that on uh, Hampton Fancher, uh, mm-hmm. who uh, wrote the original Blade Runner um, alongside Ridley Scott and was uh, contacted to write this one. But the only way he would do it um, was if he was able to write it as a novella. Um, mm. Oh, great. Yeah. So that's what the movie is based off of. He didn't do anything outside of that novella, but it like, it certainly uh, reads like one where you have mm-hmm. so many like mountains of information, uh, all this like ambiguity and alterity, like so many scenes can be read in so many different ways. Um, I think a good word besides alterity, uh, as far as like a film, a film, uh, language goes is uh the kuleshov effect um mm-hmm. that kind of uh which is described by i believe a russian filmmaker with an kuleshov who um you know he, what is his he showed a film technique where he would show an image of something and then a man with a neutral face um mm-hmm. and ask people what his emotion was and and so it was like a picture of of like a coffin surrounded by flowers and you see his face and people are like well obviously he's sad and and you do it with um like a woman and it's like he's lecherous and you do it with an image of violence or something and it's it's he's shocked or he's he's shocked or he's numb or or he's enjoying it yeah like there's there's all these people uh can extract meaning from just a layering of, of stuff. And I think Ryan Gosling like very much went into this uh, mm-hmm. experience uh, with that because you know, he plays an Android um, who is taught like not to uh, go beyond these certain boundaries of, of emotion. Um, and like, so much of the movie is him wriggling out of that, but you still get many scenes, like even towards the end, like that, uh, that turn that we talked about uh, and that we're going to talk about uh, where there is alterity in, in the blankness of his face. You could extract mm-hmm. so much meaning from yeah. it uh, yeah. that it's almost completely opaque. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 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 No, I think that's a fantastic point that that's right. That Ryan Gosling's face, Kay's face uh, has this alterity to it. He, he, there's something, about it that's sort of like so suggestive precisely because there's something lacking right yeah <laughs> like you yeah. can't like yeah absolutely and he's he is the perfect replicant isn't he i mean he's just such a great actor but he's just like <laughs> so good at that deadpan and then and then he can you know he can convey a lot of emotion in his face you know in a kind of minimal way when he wants to but he he, yeah. he can just have that deadpan uh expression i think that's a great point yeah absolutely no, it's yeah. it's one of the most I think like interesting and and maybe even subversive aspects about it, and like the times when he does act are, uh, you know, like break are are so intense, you know, and they're and they're made even more intense by the fact that he he doesn't, but then his choices of what not to uh, mm-hmm. break at are, are almost equally fascinating. Uh, really, really wonderful work uh, from him yeah. in this one. 
great. It's such a great movie to see. And, and this, you know, I think speaks to that idea of the cinematic image is that it's such a great movie to see in the theater. And that idea of the narrative too, that you're talking about that it's written in novella. It just, it's, it's immersive in a way that, um, really highlights the immersiveness of potential immersiveness of cinema. Um, did yeah. you see it? Did, have you seen it in the theater, by the way? I didn't ask. Oh, yeah, before. I saw it yeah. <laughs> too many times in theater. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. <laughs> I, uh, I believe I saw it in, in yeah, IMAX once and then twice oh, in uh, an wow. ordinary theater. Wow. Uh, and then now like twice in my own home theater, uh, which is a, a lovely experience. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I hope to see it again someday, honestly. Like it's something that I want to to do I'd again because it, it was again. so yeah. crazy yeah yeah just yeah, it's fantastic uh, yeah i mean roger deakins did such an extraordinary job uh mm-hmm. nailing that like dreamlike uh but also hyper real feel of it and also yeah. the the sound design is something um yeah sounds not a lot amazing. of people yeah, yeah the, people don't really talk about like the sound design too much about this movie uh i think it's really different from a lot of other blockbusters mm-hmm. that you see uh, it's it's really oppressive. Like I think I might even insert a clip here of the scene yeah. uh, when he's uh, when Officer K uh, is coming to land on the uh, giant LAPD building, which which towers <laughs> over <laughs> the yeah. rest of LA, um, and uh, is only really dwarfed by like the cigarette of of uh, like Jeff Bezos, like Wallace figure. Um, <laughs> Yeah, it's it's insane. Um, and there's there's these like horrific sirens uh, going, like clacks and bells. The the music yeah. is is like pulsating. Um, and he's yeah. like walking down a hall, and like people are, are castigating him because he's uh, a replicant. Like, yeah. <laughs> Officer K D six three dot seven. Let's begin. Ready? Yes. Sir. Recite your baseline. In blood-black nothingness began to spin. A system of cells interlinked within cells interlinked within cells interlinked within one stem. Fuck off, good job. Yeah, that's a great scene. Yeah, that's a great soundscape. Even little things, too, like when he goes into Sapper Morton's farm, little farm home, and there's just this, like, bubbling pot on the stove and it's sort of like bubbling and steaming over a bit and that's sound is sort of like really material and present you know you before you even know what's happening right because it's a weird transition yeah. of scenes from the flying car to the gritty like uh what are those like slugs that they're farming or something yeah, like and protein then, farm yeah yeah <laughs> and then suddenly you're in this little room this whole you know like um, kind of homey, but 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 gritty little room, and and you just right away you get the sound of the bubbling, and it's it, yeah. there's there's it's just a great um, sound design. It's really it's really phenomenal. Yeah, yeah. Well, I remember the first time I watched the movie, I I never stopped thinking about the that intro with uh, Dave Bautista as, as Sapper Morton. Uh, mm-hmm. it, it leaves such an impact mm-hmm. on. It's a great scene. Uh, the viewer and everything. Yeah. And I yeah. think, um, uh, it, you know, it leaves an impact on, on Joe K as well. Um, mm-hmm. and, Oh yeah. That's, um, and it's, it's realized so well. And I think part of that is the sound design. Cause like it never gets that organic ever again, unless like people are dying, you know, 
uh, yeah. you get like these like really wet, yeah. uh, kind of like lively sounds. You get the sound of like all the wood in there or, uh, yeah. of, of that old building. Um, yeah. Yeah. And Breaking you never again, like, yeah. yeah uh, enter into like a place with like drywall, you know, yeah. it's just, yeah. <laughs> it's just yeah. either like cement or neon or, yeah. or dust. <laughs> yeah. Um, how long you been here? Since 2020. But you haven't always been a farmer, have you? Now that's a great, that's a really great point because it all, there's something very sort of paradoxically human and visceral about that scene and lifelike, right? Because paradoxically, because they're both obviously both replicants, he's an older model of replicant, uh, et cetera. Uh, when you walk into that room, first of all, it feels like somebody's grim grandmother's house or something doesn't it yeah. it's like this yeah. comfortingly old simple uh, but also yeah then then you've got this this um the sound design and also like it's the only place where um case seems so interested in smell he smells the garlic he says yeah. that smell and then after he 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 retires quote-unquote <laughs> um, and then and he's like lying for he's got his, his eyeball he washes his eyeball out sort of like it's a great little details like that he washes sort of like yeah. his eyeball and the blood off his hands at the same time under the sink and then he goes <laughs> over and he lifts the the lid off the garlic and smell it takes a minute to smell the garlic yeah and it's like it's one of the only things that Kay does, um, I think, right? That's not a detective move, right? Because like yeah. he smells the flowers outside too, which is also interesting. It's same kind of like I'm curious about something uh, about the scent and the senses of something. But you yeah. could you could maybe see that as more of like or at least part of a detective. But the garlic, there's no reason to smell the garlic. It's just purely a desire for some kind of experience and a curiosity. That I think you're right. There's a kind of uh, really fascinating sense of something lifelike about that yeah yeah just like just yeah human texture like organic uh yeah yeah like feelings like yeah it, it's it's uh, yeah definitely one of the most like it, it it's the, like the least oppressive scene in the film you know because all the yeah. rest of it like you're being yeah. kind of uh, either bombarded by um yeah like sounds and everything or uh as what happens in in las vegas uh, a silence so oppressive that it fills mm -hmm. up everything like like the fog and the dust uh yeah that have kind of overtaken um, mm -hmm. the area yeah yeah and you can contrast that it's really interesting you know you can contrast that that strangely warm scene where he you know it's a violet scene but it's strangely kind of disjunctively a warm homey scene where yeah. he kills Sapper Morton. You can contrast that with his own home, which is this sort of like, it's this commodity space, right? Where it's like corporate, like he, you know, his, his very, you know, sort of wife or girlfriend figure is, yeah. a, is a commodity and, and, um, and the radio is playing and she, it's like an Alexa. Right. And like, she tells him the data about what's <laughs> playing. And, it's so and, horrible. Yeah. Yeah. It's horrible. But, and it sort of like looks nice in a way and it's inside this dingy building and you walk into this like perfectly constructed clean space, but it's a corporate commodified clean space and it doesn't have yeah. that that sense of that tactile material homely human sense that you do it's very interesting i think that's a really interesting contrast so, you know it's to think of like sapper morton 
as this older, not a human, right? But this older form of yeah. replicant that's maybe the most human thing in the movie in some ways. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I think it's uh, it's a really good illustration of, of what I ended up writing down is like maybe one of the things that the movie is about. Uh, and that is um, there's this contrast of like nostalgic desire and real desire uh, mm -hmm. that appears... Yeah. just all throughout the movie and uh yeah the contrast with um you know this uh sapper morton like toiling out in in the kind of wastes of california um and uh but you know eking out like a, a genuine living and and kind of living in the wake of, of this miracle that he witnessed you know mm -hmm. being like a kind of a representation of like the real like new you know a real yeah. promise of, of the kind of uh of a, a warm and good thing um, that yeah. will, like came to him and, and, and will come in the future uh, as opposed to uh, officer K gets home and yeah, his Alexa wife <laughs> starts playing uh, Frank Sinatra and serving him up like holographic steak and potatoes over his microwave noodles. Um, and yeah, it's all these things that like are ordinarily like these, these signifiers of, of comfort you know, she's even wearing like this, like, uh, uh, like checkered apron and all yeah. that. Uh, yeah. Right. Yeah. And yeah, that's yeah, interesting. I, yeah. <laughs> and I like that. I like that distinction between desire, like nostalgic desire and commodified desire. And, um, and that it's interesting too, when you said that, it, I, I hadn't really thought of it when you said that about Sapper Morton, like in his eking out a living and he's sort of like, he's got a weird sort of freedom right but yeah. it's in but it's in isolation and escape right and in in that sense he's kind of like Anna Celine, right because they both actually work for Wallace the Wallace corporation yeah yeah in some way both with the kind of some distance and both kind of like find something in like going around going along um with appearances and yet carving out their own space of resistance kind of secretly under the, um, under the surface, actually he's, you know, he's the heart of the whole revolutionary resistance and she's the future of it. Right. So yeah, it's very interesting yeah. that they, they kind of go, they're kind of invisible by going along with the system in that way. Yeah. Well, yeah. and, um, even Deckard, he is, is out, you know, living, uh, also in that isolation um yeah and there's there's a handful of ways i think to interpret that you know there there is like this idea of like i think that both stabber morton and deckard kind of believe that they've like done their part you know uh, mm -hmm. and they've they've moved on uh, yeah. from the movement or they're waiting uh there's a short film uh directed by luke scott uh that kind of mm -hmm. preambles um Sapper morton's demise like it shows how he gets outed um, and it, it's, it's doing a good thing. It's defending, uh, a, uh, a, ch a child and her mother, uh, who he, mm. uh, secrets, right. uh, books to, uh, like physical books to, uh, and it's, it's really sweet. It's a little contrived, but, uh, you know, it's, uh, -huh. uh yeah. in the end he, he like brutally kills this handful of guys, uh, and, um, the child is, is horrified by him. Um, and you kind of get this idea that like, uh, which he plays really well in his, uh, 
scene in, the, in, in this film, in the opening scene, uh, of, of he's kind of resigned himself after that. Like, he knows that that outburst uh, kind of condemned him to death. Yeah. Uh, and that's how he comes across in this. Is he's oh, like, right, yeah. He's more or less resigned yeah. to it. You know, he just, like, keeps on toiling, even though he realizes he left his address, uh, like, on the, on yeah. the streets of L.A., um, but he's ready to kind of go down with the idea. Um, you know, he, uh, which is in that amazing scene when he slams Ryan Gosling's head over and over <laughs> yeah. into a wall. Uh, and, yeah, and you get this they, great, yeah, yeah, they cut to the other side of the wall. <laughs> yeah. Shot, like, yeah. Um, you see the opposite wall just kind of like moving a little bit and then yeah. like, you go back to it. And it's, <laughs> yeah. It's suddenly like twice as loud. Yeah. It's, it's <laughs> so fantastic. That's um, great. Yeah, and another like really tactile, you know, piece of of that. Uh, and um, yeah, when like like literally like you're you're pushed through the foundation of the building, mm-hmm. um, and yeah. like they're they're both just covered in uh, the like speckles of drywall and everything. <laughs> yeah. I think the only other time that happens yeah. is funny because it's it's mirrored when he goes to uh, see uh, Deckard um, or Harrison Ford, um, and Harrison Ford is, is trying to get out really quickly, and uh, Officer K bursts through like mm-hmm. uh, a wall. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, that's right. Yeah, like a really <laughs> solid looking, you know, yeah. maybe like thin concrete wall. <laughs> yeah. Um, shortcut yeah <laughs> yeah it's great um so that's that was something that he chose yeah yeah <laughs> so let's let's talk a little bit about the opening shots because i feel like it's a very interesting right. opening sequence it's a really interesting way to start the movie uh what did you think about that so the movie starts right with an, an eye an opening an eye that opens it's closed yeah. eyelid the eye opens and then um a, a pan across this very strange um, landscape, that, which yeah. is solar panels covering the earth, um, mm-hmm. which then expands across. It's it's one um, solar panel, and then um, pans across. Those are linked broader and broader and broader. Uh, as you get a pan shot from Kay's flying car, you realize it cuts across the sky, and you realize yeah. it's. And then you get a, you get a subtitle where it's like California 2049. So it says, and yeah. then and then you see that it's almost like a metal carpet covering as far as you can see. Um, yeah. And the and the and the and the and then Kay wakes up the car. There's like he's it's, it's navigating for him. He's asleep. And then there's a little buzzer. And he wakes up and then he plunges down into or actually we the camera plunges down first we get this yeah. we go from that sky and it's such a movie of contrasts you know we go from this flying car flying through the sky getting this bird's eye view of LA and then we're suddenly from that we suddenly cut to literally a hand coming out of a swamp right <laughs> and yeah. pulling out these slugs out of a swamp and then from there uh-huh. we expand out from that who is this guy he's in this weird kind of farm uh, enclosed room stuff. So, so what did you think about that sequence? Did you have any thoughts about that? Yeah, I, I was, I, I was noticing that we kind of skipped past it and it is a really important, uh, I think sequence of images. Um, yeah, yeah there's this, uh, yeah, you get the shot of the eye opening, um, which I believe, uh, is also a shot in, um, 
the original Blade Runner. It opens with uh, uh, Roy Batty's eye opening, uh, the kind of antagonist of the film. Um, and this one, I think it, <laughs> it actually took uh, until you pointed it out uh, in uh, your crime and fiction, crime fiction uh, <laughs> uh-huh. class. Yeah. Um, that it was Stalin's eye. Uh, yeah. Who is a really important character in the movie. Um, and yeah, as it turns out, uh, it, it, she is this dream weaver for uh, uh, replicants uh, and gives them these false memories, uh, which they know are false uh, in order to uh, like keep them tame more or less. It's, it's considered one of like the primary uh, methods of that. Um, and yeah, she's the one who lives in isolation, like we mentioned earlier. Uh, yeah. And which is well, interesting because it's, it's this major, uh, reversal, uh, because not only is she like not the antagonist of the film, but, uh, she's kind of not even a replicant, uh, or right. it, not in the traditional sense. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, she's, a, she's this, she's this, she's an uncanny being. She's an uncanny yeah. Um, new creature that has never existed before, some kind of strange combination of human and replicant, a replicant that can reproduce. Um, and I think yeah. one of the things I love, I think you're right, I, I love, I love the, that it opens with this eye because first of all, it, it draws our attention to the gaze. It links it with the first film. And later we get um, that, that eye of um, um the replicant from the first one, uh, from the original Blade Runner, taking the um, uh, yeah, that's right, the uh, Voigt Kampf test. The Voigt Kampf test, yeah, uh, right, and and that's reproduced later, right? Um, uh, when we get when when K follows up and finds the um, tries to track, and they get the old that weird little uh, crystal ball sphere thing that they use, right? This yeah, little, yeah. The, the, that's the their files, etc. But they, and then you get a shot from that scene. So it's linking the two films together. Uh, it's also announcing something about the gaze as central to this film. It's just this yeah. eye that opens. And I think you're right, but I think it's what I love about it. And what I think about it is that it's, it's, we don't know whose eye it is, first of all, right? When the, when the film right. starts, you can't possibly <laughs> have any idea. It's just an eye that opens. And then, yeah. um, you, you know, later you might retro- retroactively associate that uh, or ask who Zayat is. And then it seems to be most likely, I think, Anna Celine's eye, right? Yeah. But it both is and isn't because we can't actually know that. And I think that comes back to what Emma Hines was calling the alterity of the image. It's this eye right. that, um, that, so as a viewer, as you're watching the screen and you see this eye opening, I feel like you can't help but identify in some way with that gaze. Here you are gazing at the cinema and the screen yeah. is gazing back at you. And yeah. that eye is um, both uh, – and, and one of the things that you identify with, I think, right away is – I don't know whose eye it is, but I know it's a human eye, right? There's a human eye mm. looking at me, except that it's yeah. not, right? Um, <laughs> it's, it's, uh, it's either a, a replicant – well, it could be, I guess. You don't know. It could be a human eye, but it seems more likely that it's a human eye or a replicant eye or yeah. ultimately Anastaline, this strange, uncanny human and non-human eye. And I think yeah. that's, I, I just love the implications of that. The film you're identifying with this gaze. And that's, I think, again, that comes back to Emma Hines' point of like, you identify with this gaze, but you, I, but you can also detach your gaze from the human itself. It's a kind of a non-human gaze. Yeah. 
Well, and that's such like, it just becomes a whole thing of the movie. Like so much of it is just spent like looking at someone who is looking at something that they mm-hmm. just, they, they don't understand. Uh, yeah. And, and has these like massive, like echoing implications for them. Uh, and yeah. it's, uh, all they can do is look, you know, and it's interesting because, uh, I, you don't actually get as much of that in, in the first movie. Uh, I, I think the, the line I would draw between them, uh, I think there's some really interesting, like, uh, comparisons to be made, uh, between them. Some like really deliberate, uh, differences where I think the first film is so much about bearing witness, um, to these things. It's about this guy seeing and waking up and so many shots, you know, like the ending shot, the most famous one of, uh, Roy Batty, uh, dying and the dove flying out of his hands mm-hmm. uh, and everything uh that is we are seeing that through uh harrison ford's deckard's eyes as he bears witness to the kind of beauty and horror of of what his job entails you know who's a cop mm-hmm. who kills people who he's told aren't human um mm-hmm. and yeah. The reversal of that in this film is uh, we get to watch people watch things, you know, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. that yeah. they don't really know how to witness. <laughs> yeah, that's you right. Know? Um, yeah, yeah, that's right. And then, and it, I mean, in a way, I, I think you know, maybe it's maybe it's it's worth talking a little bit about the idea of the gaze here, um, and uh, and what this film does with I think with the gaze because that you that that idea that you're looking at objects in a way you're this, this whole first of all two things one in a way this whole film you're looking at objects that are looking if you think of in the sense of what is a replicant is a replicant is not a human if it's a bio engineered um, android of some kind is it then an object? And uh, and two, the whole as you pointed out, not knowing the whole film revolves around a mis a misrecognition, right? K thinks yeah. more and more that he's the one, he's the chosen one, he's that uncanny in between human and replicant being. But then he realizes, wait, it's not me, it's Anastoline. Yeah. And um, and so I, I, so maybe to take a second now to think about what is the gaze and what is the gaze in cinema, and 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 so the gaze I think is used in often in a couple of different ways, especially in cinematic studies. And so I think it helps because I'm interested, especially in the idea of the Lacanian or psychoanalytic idea of the gaze. Yeah. And so it helps to think about maybe in terms of two two ideas of it. One is I think you most commonly hear of the gaze in film theory in terms of uh, Laura Mulvey's uh, famous essay where she thinks about the gaze in terms of the male gaze. And so the gaze is always essentially the, the camera takes the position of a male gaze gazing at uh, an object of desire, which so frequently is an objectified woman's body or women in some way, uh, in at least that structure in film. And so, uh, you know, she's kind of going on the idea that the gaze is a form of mastery, that to see something is to have some kind of mastery over it, to be able to see, to be able to, especially a detached seeing where you can sit back and look at something and gaze at it, enjoy it and know it in some way, consume it visually. And uh, the interesting thing about Lacan's idea of the gaze and the psychoanalytic gaze, it's actually kind of the opposite of that. It sort of takes that assumption that yes, the gaze is but, but the Lacanian perspective is that the gaze is an illusion of mastery. And so it kind of underlines, undermines Mulvey's idea. So it's, you're constantly in this illusion that gazing is a form of mastery. But the psychoanalytic idea of the gaze is that actually 
the the gaze, it looks back at you. The object always sees you because you're always inscribed into the image um, that you're looking at already. It already takes you into account. And so the gaze for Lacan and for psychoanalytic theory is more about these strange, uncanny moments where you suddenly are de-subjectivized from that position of being in mastery. You're undermined. It's called symbolic castration for Lacan. Symbolic right? castration, yeah. Yeah, because yeah. you're, you're, you're awesome. knocked out of that position of power. You're sort of separated from your own perspective in a way. And then yeah. the object is like taking, looking back at you. And so I think that's so interesting in this film because this film is really about objects that look in a weird way. But also, I think it's also about this, it's such an, it's such an Anthropocene and Capitalocene theme because isn't it about that strange missing link between subjects and objects or humans and nature? And the, and not only that, it's about this, the, the kind of dangerous, if not tragic desire to fill in the link. Yeah. To be. Yeah. And so, and if you go back to the idea of the Anthropocene, um, you know, you think about the definition of the Anthropocene by, by Paul Crutzen um, that the meteorologist who coined the phrase was that humans and the environment are now so intertwined that they're not, that they're affecting each other in a way that they can't get out of. So you're kind of like bound up with your own atmosphere, your own yeah. environment, right? And so in a way, isn't that what's happening in this film? If you think about the, that, first of all, Neander Wallace, that's exactly what he's done is he's knocked down one of the two links, one of the two missing pieces that separate humans from nature. And the first one is synthetic farming, right? So yeah. uh, we start with this idea that, that that our environment collapsed in 2020. It's interesting that it happens in that year, right? No. <laughs> that our, 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 our ecosystem collapses. And then Neander Wallace says, wait, you don't need, um, essentially, you don't need some living independent uh, environment, some world, some nature out there. You can actually just produce your own um sustenance with protein farming, what they call synthetic farming in the film. Yeah. And then the next link is I need to develop um, a replicant that can give birth because that's the link between what we consider human subjects and inanimate objects or created things. And yeah. so that's like his, and, and it's funny because his whole search to do that is what Kay thinks he is, but then turns out to be Anna And so that would reframe the way we think about the end of the film because it's like, what is the status of that missing link? But I think the interesting thing is that that's so, there's something so dead on about that with the gaze um, as your position of mastery of the other. And then suddenly the other looking back at you and saying, you're not, you're not in a position of mastery, right? You're, yeah. You're yeah. desubjectivized from that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think you get a lot of that, like, uh, Andrew Wallace is such like a symbolically castrated figure, you right. know? Yeah. Uh, well, that's, he's yeah. just yeah. incredible representation of that. Yeah. I think yeah. it's, it's something, it's like really funny, um, and, uh, really like <laughs> grody casting of, of, uh, Jared Leto, you know, like, <laughs> yeah. like, who is like a certifiable, perfect. like megalomaniac. You yeah. Know? <laughs> Um, yeah, yeah, I encourage yeah. you to watch his, uh, absolutely, um, just ridiculous, uh, uh, scenes that he recorded, 
uh, for Zack Snyder's Justice League. It's just uh, him like, dressed <laughs> up in like comic book character makeup, like trying to make like serious philosophical points about Batman. And he takes it. He like is he you you know he believes it. Yeah, like <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah. It's the most fucked up. Uh, <laughs> Uh, it's it's an image that I haven't gotten over uh, seeing. Um, That's great. But uh, yeah, he's. Um, I mean, for as much as like uh, the gays uh, can be the male gays, you know, like Laura Moldy's, uh, like I think it's voyeurism in, in film and cinema, uh, or, or something to that effect is the title of the essay. Um, he literally uh, he utilizes that, uh, but he has no eyes. Uh, he's, yeah. he's blind in this really interesting, yeah. uh, callback, uh, you know, more eyes stuff like his predecessor, uh, his like spiritual predecessor, uh, James Terrell, um, mm-hmm. uh, the CEO glasses. Yeah. Right. Uh, yeah. He's a CEO of, of Tyrell Corp, which made the right. original replicants. Yeah. The original right. androids. Yeah. Um, and Roy Batty, his like prodigal son, uh, finds him and pushes his thumbs through his glasses. That's right. Uh, yeah. And into his eyes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, then, yeah. and then crushes exactly. his skull. Yeah. It's, yeah. <laughs> it, uh, I think well, I was like 13 great, yeah. when I saw that scene first. <laughs> like, that was <laughs> really that's nuts. Great. Well, um, that's perfect for symbolic castration, right? Because that's the Oedipus complex, right? Where yeah, you exactly. keep where Oedipus causes his own eyes out. And, and, and that's also Freud's great example of the uncanny in uh, The Sandman, in his famous essay, which is an analysis of E.T.A. Hoffman's The Sandman, and he talks about eyes throughout much of the essay and how that symbol of losing one's eyes or being robbed of one's eyes is a symbol yeah. of symbolic castration, and that's what makes it so uncanny. And yeah. um, uh, and I think maybe that's a great, you know, I think that it's a great way. There's so much with eyes in this film, not just the gaze, but eyes, right? Like losing yeah. one's eyes, you know, they cut out the eye of Sapper Morton and, and replicants uh-huh. in general. And then it's great how Fraza removes her own eye um, yeah. so that they can't do it. They can't do it. They can't get her eye to identify yeah. her. Yeah, Fraser, the, the, uh, the leader of the uh, replicant rebel group. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, well, and, yeah. Yeah, go on. Well, I was going to say also, like, there's a whole bunch of, uh, there's a lot with the theme of the third eye. Which is a um, a very interesting, right? That's obviously kind of a Buddhist or or a kind of um, a mythical image of a kind of third vision, but also an interesting idea of a kind of you could think of it in the Freudian sense of a kind of like deflection of castration. But um, yeah. but but you have so you've got Nairder Wallace, right? That's a great example. He's blind, but he has these technological eyes that fly around and see for him. So he's got like some third level, some third eye. Um, yeah. K has his drone car drone that he cuts and says, look around, watch the car film, every, you know, uh, yeah. take pictures of everything, whatever, all these things that they can see. Um, and of course, Anna Celine has that strange uh, lens thing that she uses. It looks like a yeah. camera lens. It lets her get her vision externally to create memories Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, love has those glasses which love has above her the, that yeah. let her like control right. UAV. Yeah. yeah, um, yeah, no, yeah, those. Uh, I, I want to like go back to those, uh, uh, the like echolocator eyes that mm-hmm. uh, Nyander has, uh, because I think it speaks to both Laura Mulvey's and Jacques Lacan's uh, takes on the gaze because it is this like very real, it's like one of the most like violative scenes, um, 
I think of, of, you know, modern sci-fi really transgressive of, uh, uh, Niander, uh, witnessing the birth of like the first of a new model, um, mm-hmm. and, uh, who is feminine, uh, and like approaching her and going on this like mega megalomaniacal rant, um, about how, um, uh, her, like la- her ability not to give birth, the, the mm-hmm. ability not to give birth, uh, has yeah. like, you know, castrated him and like, and, and, yeah, uh, exactly. Like, yeah. and you can feel yeah. his like impotence yeah. in that, like in the same time yeah. that he is like really, uh, he's scanning her up and down with all these like horrible little floating eyes, uh, yeah. while like, <laughs> love his like right hand, like cries in the background. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, he's, right. it's, it's this very like real violence before he actually does like real violence to the replicant and kills her. Right. Uh, but you also feel how, uh, powerless he is in that moment. You know, he lashes out because he is, you know, completely impotent. He can't act in the way he wants to act. You know, yes. he feels, uh, trapped. Yeah. <laughs> right. Um, yeah. and that's great. Yeah. And it's great. It's got this capitalistic uh, undertone to it too, because it's like, uh, Wallace is the big other for the film, but Tyrell is the big other for Wallace because he's the one he took over. Like he created the whole thing and he just took it over. He, apparently he takes over like his whole infrastructure and then re- makes his own thing on top of it. And so yeah. it's always like the other is enjoying what I can enjoy. The big other is like appropriating my enjoyment. So he's like the one thing like I can't do is re- is get is reproduce right it's like get replicates that re- recreate like tyrell could he's like tyrell could do it but i can't you know, yeah. do it and then like <laughs> yeah so he's just yeah, like, really, taking my enjoyment yeah yeah just this really sad uh little son and it's so funny because he uh there's this great shot uh almost all of which is uh miniatures by the way i don't know if you like knew that but uh a lot of the pans over the cities and landscapes yeah. Uh, are yeah extremely like miniatures is like uh yeah you know is uh maybe not entirely accurate because they're like uh 120 feet long you know they're but, huge uh, recreated yeah. sets right yeah but they're yeah, but yeah they're scaled down but yeah, yeah he, like yeah with tons of like tiny little leds but yeah but you get this yeah. great pan when uh we're going there for the first time with officer k to check uh the records uh to find out uh whose uh, bones are discovered at, on Sapper Morton's farm. Um, and you see the original um, pyramid structure from uh, right. Blade Runner of Tyrell Corp. Uh, yeah. And then you pan past it and you have like, three times as massive is uh, yeah. like reaching, <laughs> I think, above the clouds uh, yeah. is yeah. Uh, Niander Wallace's uh, yeah. insane like Tower of Babel. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. And, and it's, what's great about that too. is like, I think that's a really great, there's so much great stuff about corporatism and, and capitalism going on here. And they like that sense that the corporation is the new sublime, right? It's the new transcendent, uh, um, space of culture. And like, it's great yeah. how you, you think about the contract, you know, cause you have these two, uh, countering forces that are trying to control this, radical change of the human race like what's this new thing that's going to change everything this new thing and those two forces are the state 
represented by Joshi and the LAPD, and then of course Wallace and the corporation and the capitalist corporate world. And look yeah. at the difference. Like the LA headquarters is so gritty and grimy, right? And it's like there's like one scene where I don't even know they're walking down the hall and somebody's like hosing blood off of a wall. Or something. Yeah. I don't even know why it's just <laughs> happening. Yeah. And, and like and Joshi's office is so bunker like. Like you're it's often shot from outside the window in the rain and you're looking into this like almost cozy little bunker. And there's one yeah. point where it almost seems like there's like space heaters on the wall or something weird like that. I don't know. Yeah, yeah, just like open radiators. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And then but then the but then the the Wallace Corporation is this like clean, sublime, radiating, sometimes womb-like space. Yeah, he yeah. even says at one point when Love walks in, one of the first scenes, he says, When you enter the kingdom of heaven, or something like that, right? And so there's this this this, this almost allegorical opposition between those two um powerful spaces. But uh, I wanted to go back to what you were saying too about Wallace and that scene with when he's watching that replicant um uh that that prototype that fails. And that one of the things interesting yeah. about that too is it's that's one of the moments where he just kind of like spouts all this stuff about about capitalism and yeah. slavery, right? And he like yeah. really makes those clear links in the film about the allegory about capitalism is like, you know. It's basically saying, like, I need a race of slaves. How am I going to have enough slaves? Like, you know, <laughs> yeah, I mean, he says, fast enough. Yeah. I think the actual words are, yeah, uh, humanity has lost its stomach uh, yeah, right. for slavery. Um, civilization um, was built on the back of a disposable workforce. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Just so clear. Like, yeah, like, just like, uh, put out. Yeah. <laughs> in case you missed these themes, here they are. Yeah, yeah. 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 Which, I mean, totally. I think it's really good because I think. Uh, you know, a lot of movies are are, are too uh, unsubtle. You know, people yeah. still misunderstand like the original Blade Runner, like which, as I said before, you know, is a movie about cops uh, who are trained to kill people and trained yeah. to believe that they are human. You know, yeah. like and and people uh, like think that it's not like relevant or you know yeah. or, or or like spiritually right. interesting or yeah, like it's, yeah, yeah. Like, yeah but it's, <laughs> you're right, and it has this. It gives it this very immediate edge you know this very relevant uh cutting edge to it because it's not just it's also linking capital it's directly linking capitalism to slavery and to to modern day slavery you know to like you know to exploitation to exploitation of the poor and iniquitous conditions you know i think it's great you know because you the, the 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 replicants are clearly others right they're minorities they're people who who are uh the workforce for capitalism anybody you know they're they're people of color they're they're it's anybody who's you know so uh who's marginalized in our in our capitalist structure of wealth and yeah um so you know it's great like there there are subtle moments like that scene again this film so much about contrast that scene where you go from him taking on sapper morton this 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 massive replicant guy who looks like as, as josh he says looks like he could tear your head off right and he, he said yeah, he tried yeah. right and he yeah. takes him on he kills him and then the very next scene he's walking down the halls of lapd cowering every time an if lapd official just walked by him and, and makes a little gesture like some bully in a hallway and he's cowering yeah. and i think that that really highlights the way in which the, the replicants are meant for us to see as the exploited in our culture and the othered and, and marginalized in our culture Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you. Yeah. It's a really profound degree. Yeah. Yeah. So where were we? So we're kind of, yeah, we talked about like, uh, 
discovering that. I have so many notes on this. Oh, I wanted to say like, kind of another note on that. Um, there's when they're uh, doing, when they're uh, studying the bones and there's that revelation that mm-hmm. um, they're the bones of a replicant. Uh, you have Officer K in the room and uh, Lieutenant Joshi and uh, Coco, <laughs> the uh, like autopsy specialist, and this other guy are all just in there making like racist comment one yeah. after another. Yeah, you yeah, know? yeah, yeah. Um, that's right. Yeah, and yeah. He's says, talking uh, about like maybe he ate the baby. Yeah, that's like, right. Yeah, yeah, was one of them. Yeah, it's like <laughs> and, that, that's yeah. also a, a really classic. Uh, yeah, refrain. Yeah, yeah. And he was. He says. Yeah, totally. He says he was a he was a sentimental skin job, and they says, "Oh, yeah. sorry, you know, like, yeah. oh yeah, yeah, like, yeah. Like, oh, sorry." Yeah. And, yeah, it's true, and and I think just that idea of you know the skin job. They keep calling him a skin job, um, that you know bringing attention to the skin. You know, I think that's another subtle yeah. reference to that. Um, and there's the, and there is at the same time. I love about it. There's a sense of humor about it too, right? It does it. It does it while getting us a laugh. At ourselves, I think, in some way, and and maybe just giving it that more accessible, except you know, edge of humor to it. You know, it's like it's awful, right. but it allows us to kind of uh, to to it, it sugars the pill with that that humor. You know, even <laughs> yeah. even I, I couldn't help but like, even when he goes back to his apartment and like even the like the the, 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 the door, the, yeah, the door and yeah. the immigrants and there's like one immigrant lady that shouts at him something like like so you come home now you prick or something yeah. like that. <laughs> like it's, the, the poor guy, he can't like you know he can't get a break anywhere. Yeah. <laughs> uh, he he kind of catches similar flack. Like he just goes out to like eat somewhere, and they're like, "Oh yeah, you're eating. You're like you fucking like piece of yeah, shit." Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> just, really yeah, the funny. prostitutes are like, "Oh god, he's a Blade Runner. Let's get out of here." Jeez, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you really do. You get it. It, it does gives you this sense of this outcast nature of this othering of this um this this person who you did and i think that that's the flip side too is right like the film it gets you to see this uh to recognize it in some way to confront in some way but also you can't help but i did of course i think you can't help but identify with k um you're identifying you're 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 identifying and you're um getting to appreciate this world of this non-human thing this replicate yeah. K, and of course that's also the, the case with Joy, who's also like another level. Like she's not even, and she's made fun of by yeah. even the prostitutes. Right, you're not real, we're real. Yeah. So that's well, a, a, like she's yeah. a, she's a replicant too. The, the prostitute is. And yeah, it's like, that's right. So yeah. she's real in relation to the hologram, like Mariette's. Like you're, he says, she says, oh, you don't like real girls. As soon as she hears the chime yeah. from Joy, because <laughs> compared to Joy, she's real, right? So it's a it's another layer of that. But but at the same time, I think that we uh, we like Joy. I think I mean as a viewer, I think Joy is oh, one yeah. of the most likable uh, characters no, in the film. Definitely, like one of the most interesting characters. Yeah, I think she's yeah, uh, yeah really likable too. Um, you get, uh, I, I think I finally landed, um, and maybe you know, all, there's there's all this stuff that speaks against it and speaks for it uh, for her agency. You know, for mm-hmm. a kind of a ghost in the machine. Yeah. Um, I think on this one, I kind of landed uh, on this idea. I do think she has agency. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the next question is like, how 
uh, intelligent uh, is she? How like, um, Mm -hmm. because she's in control, but like how much control and how deep does it go? Because Mariette does also say this thing of like, um, (laughs) you know, I've been inside you. There's like, there's less than you think. Yeah, Uh, that's a great line. (laughs) And uh, and Joy kind of says it herself. Like, uh, you know, she's only ones and zeros. Uh, yeah. whereas people are, are four, uh, yeah. or, uh, replicants are, are, you know, uh, the, the AC2G yeah. of yes. DNA. Right. Um, and I found that really interesting, but there's these moments where, uh, you know, for all is like, she does like a little Alexa thing. It's like, did you know this record was released in like 1968? Yes. And, uh, yeah. but yeah. that also, uh, has these moments where she ignores, uh, K's nonverbals, um, and, uh, obviously mm-hmm. like acts on her own desires, uh, and, uh, in a way that you could interpret as, uh, kind of acting, uh, vicariously, uh, or like wanting for him to have this vicarious journey where he becomes the real boy. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, yeah, there's so much, there's so much there because, First of all, I love the ambiguity of it. Like, so you're often arguably always, or let's say at least most of the time, not sure if she's saying what she's saying because she's like an advanced Alexa, right? Kind of thing. Like, just what do you want to hear? She'll say it, but she's so much more advanced that you can't even tell anymore. Um, Or if she has some real actual agency of her own, as you said, right? But I love the ambiguity because first of all, you know, at the end of the day, can't you say that about all of us, right? Like to what extent when you think about your agency and you start to think about free will, free will, how much are we coded by our society and desires of others and repeating things that, you know, how, how really, how free are we in our options of speech and language restricted even by language, et cetera, et cetera. So there's this sense in which, um, where we, we have to, we should always ask that about ourselves. Um, and so there's this kind of ambiguity, but you know, what's interesting too, is that, um, I thought it was very interesting, um, what you were saying. And I think there's some moments too, where I think that it doesn't seem like she's saying what he wants to hear, but it is what he desires often in some way, because that, that is whole, true. right. And so it doesn't, in some ways that makes her kind of like his unconscious, like he's, he's yeah. saying consciously, like, I don't want to, I'm a detective. I don't want to think that like, I'm this I don't want to have this fantasy about me being the chosen one, blah, blah, blah. But she's like, no, you do, you do, you do. You're the chosen one. So this is, and then, uh, and then finally, I think one of the things I found really interesting too is uh, Zizek actually makes this point uh, kind of briefly, but I think it's very interesting where he says, uh, I think he implies that the one thing that she does that shows agency is to sacrifice, sacrifice herself for K. Right. Yes. And so, yeah. and so he implies, he doesn't really explain it that much, but he implies that like she couldn't have been programmed to do that, which makes sense in a way. I'm not sure if I'm hundred percent convinced, but I like that idea yeah. that, that why would she be programmed to, to destroy herself? That seems like the one thing that would, she wouldn't be programmed to do. And so that's sacrifice yeah. for Kay, which, which links her agency to death, right? Like the idea that you could die is what makes you free, what makes you human. And that's a very yeah. interesting uh, Which she I even do. brings up, I think she says like, you know, now I could die like a real girl, like a real like, girl. Right. Uh, That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And yeah, no, it's interesting. Cause now even talking about it, I'm thinking, yeah, like there is that aspect of, uh, from some of the things we see, she's either like learning, like, cause I remember, you know, when they're up on the roof and we have that amazing, yeah. uh, green lighting, uh, which I think is, uh, 
probably a reference to vertigo. Um, uh-huh. I, I mentioned that in a, in a paper I wrote uh, for you a while back. Um, yeah. And I, yeah. I compared the two movies because, uh, you know, joy is uh, this created uh, thing uh, to Officer K that um, shows this really complicated agency of her own. And in vertigo, it's, you know, it's a uh, uh, like a real woman who is uh, doing an act and then kind of has to do an act as someone who never did that act. So mm-hmm. she's under these like various layers. Um, and then uh, in this, you know, but she does like fight back in a pretty substantive way. And it leads to uh, this, this crisis of identity and masculinity uh, mm-hmm. for the main character of Vertigo. And in this one, it's, it's similar. You get a similar journey, but like, she can't really fight back her only expressions of age, like they, her parameters only can really let her go so far. Uh, mm-hmm. You get the idea, uh, even though, so you can, you can read some of the stuff she does, like where she plays almost too much to him as resistance. Like they're up on this rooftop and she's like, I'm so happy when I'm with you. And he kind of is taken aback and he's like, you don't have to say that. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's great. Yeah. That's a great moment. Yeah. So good. Uh, yeah. And, uh, she's like at various times also like undermining his like relationships with women. Like she'll make a little, her little, uh, sound yeah. from Peter and the wolf. That's right. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and she makes and, jealous comments and stuff sometimes like, uh, yeah. even, like they, like that weird moment. And there's so many awkward moments in the scene, like that one where you're yeah. talking about, like, he's like, you didn't have to say that. It's such an awkward moment, which I love. That's a great <laughs> yeah. thing that he does that. And also the scene with Joshy where Joshy hits on him, which is awkward, but then, yeah. sh- but then Joy makes a jealous comment about that, right? She says, "Oh, you didn't like her enough to tell her the truth about that story." And um, yeah, and that that yeah, that was a really interesting moment too because she's because she's she, she, you don't know if she's jealous. Does he want her to be jealous in a way, right? Because you that's a right. Yeah. Is, yeah. She, is she speaking to like a stereotypically male vision? Right. That he is right, like right, probably right. guilty yeah. of in some aspect. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And there is a lot of that, like, yeah, kind of like you're saying the unconscious, you know, uh, one of the kind of primary aspects of, of psychology is that like, we don't really know what we want, you know? So there's these times where she's like literally like whispering in his ear, you know, (laughs) uh, like a man of woman born. Um, and you kind of get the idea that, you know, it's, it is a lot like himself telling himself that like when you're talking Mm -hmm. about third eyes, I think the closest thing to a third eye that uh Kay has like more than his drone um is is her you know she emanates out of that little uh like white dot um Mm -hmm. and yeah just kind of like follows him around and does these things and he's like ashamed of her but he uh there's that great like scene uh when he hears uh, Harrison Ford coming and like really quick, it like turns her off. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and um, right. yeah, like uh, there's all these like awkward, yeah. Like feelings, all this alterity wrapped up in it. Um, and he, she's like wrapped up in his identity too. Like, you know, he's it throughout the whole film uh, until about that third act. He, plays this character of, of the detective. Like he talks like one, you know, he's doing this like voice almost, you know, just like right. nostalgic kind of noir detective. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, uh, it's, it's so obviously a put on, you know, just as much as like the, uh, 
you know, checkered apron and the Frank Sinatra and the Elvis, uh, like these, these kind of empty, uh, symbols of, of nostalgia and, and meaning. Um, and I think it's really interesting for him too, because he's, you know, he is aware, uh, and part of the reason he's so subservient is, uh, because of his, uh, like lack of real memories. Like he knows that his whole, like every part of him is fake down to like what he thinks and feels. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that's the thing that allows him to, to do horrific things. Uh, Mm -hmm. And it's only when he learns that one of his memories Mm -hmm. is, is real that he, uh, it like actually gets a connection to the Mm -hmm. real world. to like the material, world and is forced to step outside of that fantasy. Um, Although I would say, I wonder if I would ask, do you think it's when he realizes that memory it's real or do you think it's when he realizes that it's a misrecognition that it's real, but it's not his, which is a really fascinating thing, right? Yeah. Because, because he has that moment. Clearly there's this like emotional outburst when he, when he learns from Anastasia that it's real and he thinks it's his, therefore he thinks he's vindicated and he's proven right. And he goes home and he says to Joy, everything you said was true. Um, yeah. And then the, the, the sequence is really interesting because then that's when he has sex with the Joy Mariette <laughs> yeah. weird thing, right? Which is certainly it's, a continuation of some kind of fantasy, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, that's still, that's a good, that's a good connection you had to fantasy. It's because it's so funny, like he, he has this insane emotional moment, like he stands up and he sh- like shrieks. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, great. In, See, in yeah. Celine's office um, yeah. and then goes home uh, after failing his baseline test too. Like he's, yes. he's picked up he goes outside. He fails, that's right. Uh, is baseline. told that he has PTSD um, yeah. you know, uh, <laughs> tells Lieutenant Joshi that, uh, he's, uh, taken care of quote unquote, uh, the, uh, the baby that's out there. Yeah. Um, and for that, you know, for kind of maintaining, uh, the wall of apartheid, she gives him 48 hours to get out of town. And so then he arrives yeah. home and, uh, his virtual girlfriend is already a <laughs> prostitute. <Yeah. laughs> That's right. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, yeah, that's right. Crazy. Yeah. It is. It is. It's a, it's a great sequence of events. You know, things start to really pick up there, uh, and and there's there's a it's a surprising sequence of events. You don't know exactly what's going to happen next. I really like that about it. And um, and the baseline test is great. I want to come back to the baseline test because that's such a great moment. But um, oh god, it's awesome. It's a great. Yeah. That whole theme is great. It's really amazing. Um, but yeah, then he goes, then he goes, so my, and then my, or maybe we should, if, I don't know if you want to take it in that sequence. Cause then the next thing that happens that I think might be the turning point is the moment where he, um, he finds Deckard that they get found, uh, mm-hmm. out by, by everybody basically, right. Both the corporate, the, Tyro, the, uh, Wallace corporation and the LAPD and they, yeah. they find him. And then he, but that, so then he ends up walking through the street, um, and seeing the advertisement version of Joy, who's just been his Joy has been crushed under yeah. Love's feet. Well, yeah, she says it's it's uh, yeah. she's about he's about to be coup de grade by Love, and yeah. she kind of uh, yeah she appears and yells uh, yeah like no like don't do it right um, Stop, right and then 
Love Love is also a really great ambiguous character. She either uh, takes Joy's life instead of his uh, mm-hmm. because she kind of likes him uh, mm-hmm. or because she thinks it'll hurt him more. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Uh, that's a great and, point. Yeah. And, and maybe both, you know? Yeah. Uh, yeah, I think like both. there's yeah. some kind of complicated uh, thing going on there. Um, and then, yeah, he's picked up by the resistance and they say you have to kill Deckard. And then he's just kind of wandering around L.A. Uh, and yeah, he sees that uh, giant advertisement, like standing like stories and stories above him. Uh, and her eyes are black. They're not there. <laughs> yeah, that's great. I think that's great. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And she and so he sees her. And so to me, I think that's a key moment in the movie because he sees her not as the one that he had, but as this Lexa. Th- this yeah. right uh, product advertisement walking down the street as this advertising image yeah. with these blackened out eyes. And I think the blackened out eyes for me, that kind of chimes in with a, a strange insect theme throughout the film. Um, yeah. You have, um, you have, for instance, you, you have the bees in the, in the, um, in the desert and you have that moat where Anna Selene is creating the beetles eyes and stuff like that. And, and you have this idea of insects as this like inhuman thing. They're not like animals that can be kind of like anthropomorphized and, and there's something insect like about those blackened eyes. And then, but also of course she, she looks at him and says, you're a good Joe. You look like a good Joe. Yeah. Yeah. You look like a good Joe. And that, (laughs) and that's a key shift, right? And it's then that he, sort of like takes out his gun and is like, all right, I'm going for this. And he goes, goes yeah, back yeah. Uh, and sets off that whole, that's the action uh, scene three action sequence of saving yeah. Deckard and the chase. Well, it's so crazy. Yeah. yeah Cause she, uh, and we, we didn't establish earlier, but you know, I imagine it, you've probably seen the movie if you're listening to this, but uh, yeah. we'll still keep trying to explain it. Uh, yeah. But yeah, like she says uh, when she's talking about him being real, uh, mm-hmm. She says, you need a name, oh, you know, let's name mm-hmm. you Joe. And he's like, what? And he's like, yeah, you're going to, let's name you Joe. Like you're, 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 you're not K, you're Joe. Yeah. Um, your mother would have named you, she says. Yeah. Yeah. And mm-hmm. then it turns, yeah. And then this scene happens <laughs> and he's looking, yeah, he's covered in blood uh, <laughs> and looking up at this. And she says, yeah, like you look like a good Joe. And, um, one of the obvious takeaways from that is that's just like a programmed thing, yeah. you know, in her. Right. And, uh, like, and, and yeah, there's just the, the unreality of, of like her personhood, mm-hmm. like, like all those dominoes might've just fallen over in that moment. Um, and uh, the, uh, like the words actually flash in his memory. Like I think when yeah. that happens, uh, he he immediately recalls to himself like the most human thing to do is to die for a cause you believe in. So mm-hmm. he just like yeah takes out his gun and it's like all right like I am this like the the rug has been pulled out from under me like I'm just ready to die for right the the thing I think is important yeah yeah and and is th- that the um the, the, you know he hears that. Um, uh, that um, Fraser saying that you know the most human thing you can do is to die for cause, and then he also hears Sapper Morton saying, "You've never seen a miracle, right?" 
Yeah, yeah. Uh, and there's this weird little internal montage of that moment, and yeah, I think that's right. And then he, so I, I, my kind of my kind of reading of that moment is is that joy represents here this way in which um, our modern sort of consumerist capitalist society subjectivizes us into believing that it gives us our identity, right? That, that, that our desire is linked through commodities to our identity, right? And so Joy tell, give, telling me what he wants to hear is like satisfying his, himself and giving him his identity. And, and when she, literally when she names him Joe, it's like that links that sense of being the chosen one, right? Like that's kind of right. like... The idea is that you're special, right? Like that, that, and this, that it's the, it's the infrastructure of the commodity uh, culture that we have that grants you that, right? Like I always think of, uh, that's what advertising is. It's just really what all advertising is, right? Like I always think of, <laughs> yeah. I always think of, you are the chosen one via yeah. Ford Escape. Uh, yeah. Exactly, right. Ford Escape. I always think of the Subaru ad, which is, I think, particularly insidious. It's like love. <laughs> it's what makes a Subaru a Subaru, right? It's like, oh my God, Ooh. that's so gross. But it, but yeah. it is. It's like this thing is going to fill the lack of like what you, what you desire always seems to escape you, right? Yeah. Because you can't kind of grasp it, but then the product comes in there and gives you gives it to you. It's like no, it allows you. I'm allowing you to fulfill your identity as one with your desire. <laughs> and then yeah. it's the moment where Joy says, "You're a good Joe," and you're right. It's like I thought I was Joe. I thought you did like give me my identity, and you were this real thing for me. But that's also the most liberating moment for him because it's like no, actually, I don't. Uh, it, uh, this isn't what I desire. It's like you said, and I would even say that's what psychoanalysis main lesson is is that you're you never desire what you think you're desiring right um, yeah yeah and that the object of desire is always um one step away it's always elusive to you um and that it is at that moment where she says you're a good joe that suddenly he's separated from that identity of commodification and then yeah. and then and then, yeah, I think that, like, you're right. Like, when, he's, when he says he hears those, that revolutionary um, statement, like, to, to give your, to, to uh, a sacrifice yourself for something, uh, and Morton's statement about seeing a miracle allows him to, to do something not for himself, right? To do something yeah. that's for, for someone yeah. else. But also, and I think this has come back to the alterity of the image, is that what's great, I think, is that he hears Fraser's statement, but he doesn't do what Fraser was saying to do. So yes. he doesn't yeah. he doesn't join with the revolutionaries. So this is another moment where uh, I think this is a key thing. And I, I like, I, 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 I'm really interested in Zizek's reading here. Zizek has a reading on the film that you can find online very easily if yeah. you just look up Zizek and, and Blade Runner 2049. And um, I read it before uh, we began. It's a really oh, good, good one. Yeah, yeah, it's really good. But I actually disagree with him on this point because. So do I. <laughs> yeah, right? Because that's, that's, yeah. like, that's like kind of a constant thing for me and Zizek is like, oh, yeah. that's a pretty good observation, uh, but like, I don't <laughs> accept your. Yeah, uh, your, your conclusion about this, yeah. Yes, <laughs> I, I I actually find that I agree with Zizek a lot. I really I think he's pretty amazing. But in, in this point, I strongly disagree with his position because his position is that why does why does K do what he does at the end? His position is that um, he, you're essentially he's essentially being humanist, right? 
Like to be right. human is to sacrifice yourself. But but what he's doing is he's valuing the family over either the revolutionaries or the or the state because he's not yeah. right. So he ultimately doesn't do what phrase of the revolutionary wants him to do, nor does he do what the state that he works for and the police want him to do. So so Zizek yeah. values the family. But I actually think that he he doesn't do either. That he does something um, that is like in a way the most radical thing, which is in a way, nothing, right? <laughs> like in yeah. a way he's actively passive or something. Like he brings about um, this gesture. That's purely just a gesture. I'm just going to bring um, Deckard to his daughter. Like I'm just going to bring them together in a way that frees them both from both the revolutionaries and the state and the corporation from all three actually. Right. But, but doesn't really have a, it doesn't have a teleology to it. It doesn't have an end game. It's not really for any, I don't know why I'm going to do it. I'm just going to do it. And I think that in a way that, in a way to me, that's the most radical kind of gesture of resistance. Hmm. Yeah. Just to do like something nice. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Right. yeah. It's like a purely ethical act, right? It's like, there's no ends to it. I'm not doing this for any, uh, anything but for itself. Yeah. Yeah. Um, just something that like, he, yeah, he and himself believed in. Yeah. yeah. And I, I disagree with Zizek on this also, because I think Frey has shown as far more um, sympathetic than Lieutenant Joshi and, and Niander Wallace as well. Mm-hmm. You know, that's right. Yeah. Like, yeah. Uh, and it is like a thing that happens all the time in, in movies, um, you know, but like there's much worse culprits than this, where you have like the character who like ostensibly believes all like these really good things. Uh, I think the most egregious example of this is uh, uh, Killmonger in uh, Black Panther. Um, mm-hmm. Killmonger is a character who believes in like black liberation and the ending of slavery uh, and and reparations. Um, and then his last little nugget of characterization is, uh, and so we should kill people. Um, <laughs> right. Yeah. And, or, or like yeah. enslave the white race, you know? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> right. Right. I think and, that's, yeah, that's right. And it's this thing that was, so it, it makes it so that the like liberal centrist, uh, character like hero can, uh, have like a, an ethical one up on them, <laughs> like, mm-hmm. uh, mm-hmm. you know, where you have like, and it's like, you know, uh, you you have a good heart, but all these things are wrong. And like uh, the climax or the ending of the film, the resolution is uh, <laughs> it's so terrible. Like literally um, they do like a Pete Buttigieg type like a uh, community outreach, like Clinton <laughs> foundation shit. And that's like, that is, that's that funny. is the stuff they do instead of a reparations yeah. because the, the guy who was too extremist, you know, wanted, uh, <laughs> wanted those things. <laughs> and in this case, you know, it's like, uh, yeah. you know, we need to have this revolution, you know, like millions of our millions of us are enslaved. Uh, but in order to, uh, break free of that, uh, you have to kill beloved character actor Harrison Ford. Yeah. Um, right. and, <laughs> yeah. Well, I think that's, um, yeah, I think that's right because it's, it's it speaks to the way in which you're right. Like the revolutionaries have a privileged position in relation to this opposition between this cult, the, the, uh, um, corporation and the state, but because both of those are an oppressive force against, um, 
exploited, like that's the, the replicants, the slave kind of culture, exploited culture. So they have this privileged position, but by being revolutionaries, they are also sort of engaging in the same discourse, right? Like they, they agree, once yeah. you rebel against something, you agree to something about that thing you're rebelling about, right? So you kind of like engage in the same violence, you could say, or the same uh, structure that you're overthrowing. You kind of risk getting stuck in it. And that's why I think it's interesting that Kay uh, and Anna Celine find some third way out. Like they're not, yeah. they're not, they're, they're going to resist the whole discourse of slavery and oppression and in some way, maybe not even, re, not even have a direct violent revolution. Uh, uh, right. But just yeah. cause really, I mean, you don't need that. Like if we pursue this a little bit, maybe you don't need to because now Anna Celine is that thing. She's that new creature that, that, once she's there, humans are no longer this unique be- unique yeah. beings, right? Yeah. So they, they no, yeah, sort it of- is. It is, yeah. I think something, um, yeah. I think so many times you can get like that kind of like third way that it, you know feels it's it's less a third way and like a a middle way, but in this case, it's it's definitely like fully outside the paradigm. She right. just it manages to circumvent all of it and still do something that you know could ho- will hopefully result in in the kind of change of of everything you know the, the breaking down mm-hmm. of that wall uh that lieutenant joshi describes in that really crazy quote where she just like <laughs> talks about like why uh <laughs> like los angeles needs an apartheid you know yeah um, yeah right yeah uh, i'm gonna actually pull up that quote here um but yeah it's it's really uh telling i think too that the whole like fight it happens on the seawall uh, uh, yeah. bordering Los Angeles from from the rising mm-hmm. uh, ocean levels. Um, yeah, that's right. Yeah. So, yeah, when and, you, and, yeah. Yeah, when you think about that theme, if we're thinking about that sense of the Anthropocene or the Capitalocene as that missing link, that divide between humans and the otherness of the environment, which is which is being threatened to be you know, if you think about the idea of the Anthropocene is that humans need to in some way annihilate or eradicate the otherness of nature. So sometimes that word, the word post-natural is thrown around, like a, we're in a post-natural era, which doesn't mean that there's no, or post-nature, uh, which doesn't mean there's no more actual nature, right? Like you can go out, we can go out to the Wildwood Trail and everything. and look at, But the idea is that like there's yeah. no, there's no more nature as something totally distinct from humans there's no there's no nature that exists purely as an other thing um, that isn't already in some way contextualized um um by by humans in some way and so so again to come back to that wall right that wall is a really great image because that world is unsustainable that's the anthropocene is you suddenly realize that wait a second in order to like eradicate the otherness of nature i become i enter into a state of of um, a lack of otherness that's, that's radically unsustainable. It's going to collapse at some point. And that wall is the thing that keeps out the rising oceans from subsuming um, culture altogether, right? You have this LA that's already really swampy and wet all the time. And then you have this yeah, wall yeah. of this ocean that seems to be threatening to just swallow it up. And the whole, yeah. and I think you're right, it's great that the whole final fight out takes place right on that board or right on that wall. You know, it's very, it seems to be very symbolic in that sense. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. No, it's, uh, yeah, so fantastic. I, I pulled the yeah. quote here. It's, uh, Joshi says, <laughs> it's heinous. Uh, the world <laughs> is built 
uh, on a wall that separates kind. Tell either side there's no wall. You've fought a war or a slaughter. Yeah. The world is built on a wall that separates kind. Tell either side there's no wall. You bought a war or a slaughter. Which is, you know, that's like what people said before uh, like the unification of South Africa, you know? Like, yeah, yeah, that's right. And, and it depends on... <laughs> It depends on the, the the kind of like keeping sacred of the idea of the human, yeah, um, yeah. Because because that's like and that's what underpins all slavery, right? It's like these these others aren't human, right? Only this type of human is really human, and these other ones. I mean, a slave is literally to objectify a human being to say I could buy other human beings, own them, etc. I use them as tools. Um, yeah. that's right. I yeah. think that's that that's that's great. Do you want to go uh, back to the baseline test? Oh man, <laughs> I don't actually know how much I have to say about the baseline test. Just besides, like, I mean, uh, using those uh, excerpts from Pale Fire are so yeah. nuts. Yeah, um, it's great. Yeah, and uh, yeah, the, the dreadfully distinct is mm-hmm. is a phrase that pops out to me. Yeah, just like, and you really see it hit like they cut on those words a handful of times. Um, yeah, and uh, yeah, it's it, it's crazy that it's from a completely separate work because it feels so uh yeah integral like it applies so much and it's integral to the goings on of of the movie and to like officer k's personal like journey yeah no i think that's totally true It's, it's it's such a great passage for that film it works so well um it, there's all these. I think it's brilliant. There's all these plays on the. So the so the line from Nabokov. Uh, I won't I won't go into a summary, but Pellfire is a great novel. But one of the interesting things about the novel is the whole novel is actually supposed to be the footnote footnotes to a poem, right? So there's yeah. like a a poem, and then if you read the footnote, so the poem the the novel starts out with a long poem, and then if you read the 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 novel you read through the poem and then you read the footnotes and the footnotes turn into this whole novel. Um, and I will <laughs> yeah. go, but it's fit. It's great novel. There's all this stuff about doubling in it because the, uh, mm-hmm. the, 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 the author of the footnotes is like tracking the author of the poem. And this becomes, ends up being like a stalker and stuff. So there's all this great crazy yeah. stuff going on. But anyway, the, but, but to, I just want to read maybe so that, so the lines of the baseline tests are taken from the poem section of the novel Pale Fire. In particular, there's this one line where he says, um, cells interlinked within cells interlinked within one stem and dreadfully distinct against the dark, a tall white fountain played. And um, so I, 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 yeah, it's, it's, it's a great, the baseline, there's two baseline tests. They're both really interesting scenes. We could probably do a whole episode just on those. So we won't, yeah. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> uh, with the, like one of those, but I was thinking one of the things that interested me is that first of all, you're right. Like it takes this other work that is never explained why pale fire. It's a very, it's suggestive in all these ways, but it's also weirdly elusive. And, um, and I think there's something about poetry, you know, if we think about the alterity of the image, that kind of otherness, that there's some surplus of meaning that you, that's inaccessible to you. You can't you'll yeah. never quite get there. You'll, and, and that invites your readings of it, uh, that there's something about that in poetry in general, and especially maybe in these lines or particularly in these lines, um, that image, the, the images there are really interesting. So, you know, cells interlinked within cells interlinked. There's all these plays 
with the idea of those things with cells of being contained, like a cell is something might be something that contains you and isolates you, but then interlinking. Yeah. So, so, uh, so there's, for instance, one of the questions that the, the voice and the baseline test asks is, do you dream of being interlinked? Um, but then another question is something great, something about uh, when you're not working, do they, do they keep you <laughs> a little box or something like that? Yeah. Right? <laughs> um, <laughs> Uh, so, so there's all, so, uh, but so it struck me when I was coming back to that first question, like, what is the nodal point? What is the, the, the navel of the dream of this movie that, that where, where that alternative image is densest? I think it might be in the baseline test, which is so fascinating because the idea of the baseline test is, do you have an unconscious, right? Like you yeah. might be saying one thing, but is something else going on that you, even you don't have access to. And this and this weird way of like playing with words is a way to get to that unconscious in some way. And then also the imagery there, both in the in the poem and in the film, I think to me it's one of the most mysterious things. So this image of cells interlinked within cells within interlinked within one stem and dreadfully distinct against the dark, a white a tall white fountain played. And that we never know what that tall white fountain is in the poem, and we never know. But in this, in but what, interestingly, in that baseline test, while he's taking the second one, Joshi is looking at some kind of weird computer screen, yeah. like showing something inside his head or something. It's not, it's very ambiguous. We're not clear. But what you yeah. see is these like what might they, it might, looks like it might be like planetary bodies or cells, like super close ups of cells, and there's this yeah. weird kind of synoptic white flash that's going across between them in some way yeah. like a like a tall white fountain playing dreadfully exactly. distinct in the dark or something that's, and it's then really that, wild yeah. yeah and then that image like which is which is i think fantastic because it's totally in some sense it's totally meaningless but in some sense it's very suggestive and so there's that image and then i'm thinking about other images that might resonate with that the the, the white elvis flickering in and out of the <laughs> nightclub scene yeah, with yeah. these floodlights on him like a fountain playing yeah. in the dark um and then um in uh, yes i yeah um either opens up a hole in her ceiling uh -huh. or, or creates a hologram yeah. of a single, like a uh, uh, three by three circle of snow, like a, a yes. column of it falling right. on, falling yeah. on her. Yeah. yeah. And she's but I think it's, white playing around in this falling snow. And then, yeah. yeah, I think it's a really great image. Yeah. No, it is. Yeah. I think in, in the context of pale fire, the character is, is suffering from a near death experience. Um, Mm -hmm, right which is interesting too given that like uh spoiler alert you know yeah <laughs> uh the uh officer kate dies uh in the end um we think and uh <laughs> we think yeah the image is the image is ambiguous in in the screenplay uh it, it ends with like he dies uh <laughs> yeah he like sits there and dies but you know yeah. it's in the image it, it's it's unclear, you know, what, what it does look like he does is he lays back his head to rest. He goes to sleep, which yeah. is interesting because the first thing we see him do is, is wake up, um, yeah. in the film. And right. that kind of yeah. initiates this, like I was saying, like, uh, insane trip, uh, through these really deep and gritty textures. And then these like hyper real, um, you know, interiors, and uh then dreamlike yeah. uh 
foggy places of Las Vegas. And uh, yeah, just um, I, I do think uh, yeah. it's just especially the pacing, too, of the movie. It's nearly three hours long, which which lends it that dreamlike quality. Yeah, um, the pacing and is also. A, yeah. 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 And also a poetic quality, uh, mm-hmm. too, um, where it's just. I think it's one of the ways, I mean, it's like lingering on something is such a way to achieve alterity in Mm -hmm. film. I think really famously, you have the ending of The Graduate, um, where you have the like happy Mm -hmm. ending between this couple, like, you know, running out of this lady's wedding and Mm -hmm. then holding on them. And they just kind of like shuffle (laughs) around and shift in their seats and they start (laughs) to kind of look and, uh, yeah, I get the sense that like, where's the happily ever after, you know? Yes. And then Dustin um, Hoffman's face just suddenly like <laughs> it stays yeah. a little too long, and like, what, like, what is the next? What happens next? Which I think that's great comparison because yeah. at the end of this movie, I think just the other alternative the image is the ending. What happens next? It just ends with like that. I, I love that image of um, Harrison Ford's hand on the glass, Deckard's hand on the glass that's separating him from this radical, the other new creature, this uncanny being that, that ha- contains some counterfactual future that we don't know. Um, yeah. and, and just like what happens next That's the end. And I, and I know people have complained about the ambiguity of that ending. Uh, but I think it's wonderful. And I think it comes back again to Emil Hines, alternative of the image. I think the thing that I love most about that ending about the alternative of the image is that what it does is it prevents us from consuming the meaning of the film, yeah, right? It's absolutely. In a way that just, we, we can't, it doesn't close and contain and seal itself off. We have to live with this open-endedness, the sense of like, what's next. It's just, it's opening, ending with a question as it were in a way. Yeah. Well, that's my favorite thing about a lot of, of revolutionary art is yeah. It avoids that, um, that resolution in the end that allows you to be like, Oh, I'm so glad all of the slaves were freed. And, Right. Um, yeah. you know, like the, uh, a new, better future is achieved and, uh, yeah. Andrew Wallace yes. gets the wall, right. That's you right. know, and like, uh, yeah. all this stuff, you know, instead it's, you're just yeah. like left with this image, uh, and, and like so many other pieces of, of revolutionary art, it, it, it's mostly just like asking, what are you going to do? Yeah, that's, like, a, that's a great point. I mean, it shows you why something like V is for Vendetta is actually so conservative, right? And, it, yeah. and it's like, it, it, despite it seemingly embracing of a revolution, it's it's kind of scary how you see now, like you see conservatives with that very image, right? And so um, it, it's that, this linking of form and art and, 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 and politics. And, um, and and again, that's what Ebelheim's point is like, it, the, the alternative of the image makes you think about both the ontology and the politics of the image in a new way. And I think that that's what makes this um, such an interesting ending and not an ending that you can consume and therefore can can become conservative at the drop of a dime or, 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 or yeah. raise its opposite. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Well, um, I, I think we probably need a whole season on Blade Runner 2049. This is so <laughs> if we really want to, there's so many scenes we didn't get to talk yeah. about. And I, right. Oh and I gosh. think that I would love to have talked. I mean, literally there's so many scenes that I feel like we could have done an episode just on that scene that I love the night yeah. of Elvis scene. <laughs> but we can know, maybe do another, yeah. um, I mean, I'd do another episode on it. We could do a part one and two. We like, can do that. Yeah. Fuck it. Uh, <laughs> I'm looking through this and looking to see if there's, any marginalia i realized i misspoke and i said uh james terrell i looked it up and uh 
Terrell's oh, yeah. last, uh, first name is Eldon. And oh, what yeah. I was mentioning was was uh, James Terrell, uh, T-U-R, the artist. Uh, who is this artist mm-hmm. uh, who he got uh, – he was the inspiration for the Hotline Bling music video. Uh, but <laughs> <laughs> he's an uh, installation artist who works with these uh, – landscapes and i think or not landscapes these like interiors often concrete uh and and what he calls light fields um and his influence is mostly uh-huh. he most easily seen in um niander wallace's office but it uh, appears cool. all over Very the place in the that's film. really interesting i didn't know that at all yeah and that's yeah it is this yeah. really uh yeah clean um crisp uh but in being mm-hmm. so clean and crisp kind of surreal mm-hmm. uh yeah like almost endless zone yeah they really nail that strange kind of transcendent corporate aesthetic of our yeah. day in the film i think and it really there's so much i i mean like if one thing like there's so much going on in just the mise-en-scene in this movie right we could, we could have an episode just on the mise-en-scene i think <laughs> <laughs> yeah right yeah so no yeah there's like the automat at uh bb's bar like mm-hmm. the return of the of the automat which is those uh, a, a restaurant that's entirely just vending machines yeah so many great little uh little parts just showing like the isolation interesting i think another interesting part here was that uh one of the major moves that happens in it uh is they never actually say the word pinocchio which i think is funny they say real boy mm-hmm. which is a reference to pinocchio and kind of one of the first expressions of uh, his of, of Kay's um, humanity and agency outward is uh, him lying to Lieutenant Joshi. You know, yep, that's right. Um, yeah, that's great. Yeah, that's right. That's a great point. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it's kind of his last like revolutionary yeah. act as well. He just he lies and says that Deckard is dead. Yeah, uh, yeah, that's and, right. Uh, and and then he says to Deckard, he's fine as he's dying. You know? Yeah. <laughs> That's right. Um, yeah, bleeding yeah. out. Um, I, lo- I love that little note where Love um, points out before she kills Joshi. She's like, "You think you think you you know what you're talking about because he told you, and and you think he can't lie. He can't lie." And then she goes, "I'm going to tell yeah. Wallace that you tried to shoot me, and that's why I killed you." And so she like lies yeah. to her, and she's like, "Okay." <laughs> yeah. So she yeah, has her own like little dark mirror of it. Yeah. Yeah. Love right. is great. Like I think that. She's a great contrast, I think, expressed in the idea of like, uh, you know, Kay kind of changes because he's able to witness his own miracle. Um, And Love's journey is like witnessing one after another, like the complete opposite of a miracle, just like an absolute, like unholy terror. Yeah, 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 that's Uh, right. (laughs) That's a great, yeah, that's a great point, yeah. Um, And there's the scene, yeah, like when... um, in what I think is maybe the best use of, of de-aging technology uh, mm-hmm. in um, modern filmmaking, uh, when they resurrect Rachel uh, Deckard's uh, yeah. old love, who Such was a fascinating. Uh, yeah. was able to give birth. She comes back and uh, like love uh, like has like sheds a couple tears in just like seeing it, mm-hmm. um, and. But Harrison Ford's expression is like happiness and and terror, uh, yeah. you know, because which I think is uh, the most uh, realistic reaction to that, you know, uh, because mm-hmm. 
I remember seeing like Rogue One in the theater for the first time and like um they have uh Grand Moff Tarkin uh you know which is um oh shit uh Peter Cushing yeah they they have they have yeah, they yeah. resurrect Peter Cushing with this like doughy CGI uh yeah. and it's really horrific right. and uncanny and <laughs> they play it like it's supposed to be like like fun and like whoa it's like look he's here he just died he we died so long ago but now he's here uh <laughs> but it more like is just horrific to me and uh yeah and then you get the same thing in like uh, they also do that to princess leia in that movie uh which is super fucked up looking and in this like yeah you have harrison ford like seeing like the kind of uncanny um effect like her face is like too smooth right. um and uh he's just yeah like more horrified uh and then she's like brutally killed like, with a yeah. gunshot to the yeah. head by love that is brutal uh, yeah yeah and yeah to me like that is the best use of of that like it's not for the nostalgia you know of it it's it's uh her last words are like, don't you love me? (laughs) Yeah. Um, and it's definitely the most honest expression I've ever seen of that (laughs) kind of, uh, really, really gross and cynical, uh, Uh like filmmaking instinct, but instead, (laughs) uh, pushed onto the gross and cynical, uh, villain of the film. (laughs) That's right. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good point. Yeah. They do a great job of making her look like, somehow realistic but also uncanny it's just close enough and too like you said too perfect in a weird way yeah yeah yeah, yeah. it's it's yeah like face tuned yeah yeah that's a good that's a good metaphor yeah <laughs> yeah Christ. yeah <laughs> uh, well uh, i guess that about wraps it up for our yeah uh, part one possibly of part one at least on yeah maybe yeah all right. a marginalia bonus episode at some yeah. point later uh i do want to get like a, a really quick screenshot here uh i think i want to make an image of our faces uh looking into a bright light like officer k okay uh so if you wanted to like uh move your curtain or whatever and just like stand there for a second so i can get a good screenshot but <laughs> perfect all right so I, like had a little uh there you go towards that and just like look up at it yeah <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah but uh, a little more three quarters just like one more one more good all right actually come a little closer to the camera there there we go and do the look a little closer to the a little uh, face towards me a little closer there we go okay i think i got it <laughs> i appreciate it <laughs> Awesome. Yeah. Nice. I'll just like cut you out. I'll paste us onto that bridge. Uh, okay. Yeah, yeah. That's great. <laughs> um, man, what a good movie. Very cool. Yeah. yeah, that was great. Well, that was great. I mean, we, we, yeah, that was, I think that's a great discussion. A lot of good stuff yeah. there. Um, it's pretty, pretty generative. Yeah. Like, yeah. Um, I like, I like that a lot. That was a lot of fun. And I feel like that covered a lot of ground. Um, absolutely yeah. Um, yeah we did cover a lot of ground yeah. yeah we didn't so much summarize but i think we jumped around in a coherent enough way yeah, yeah. so i think i think so and you kept us you know grounded with like okay this is what is going on yeah so that's good <laughs> <laughs> that's good yeah, yeah.